Let's get to God's Word. I like to keep my ear to the ground in my own church when it comes to the kinds of questions that our church members are asking. That's what you do as a pastor, I guess, right? You listen and you respond. I like to hear what people are asking, hear what they're talking about, so I can think about those things, and then I can go to God's Word to ask, what does God say about these things? And in our church, at least, over the last little while, and even as I travel around and speak to others and receive lots and lots of emails from all around the world, I've been hearing lots of questions about the relationship between adult children and their parents, and especially when parents are elderly or infirm or impoverished. So as Christians, we understand that children are to honor their parents. That's explicit in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Young children need to obey their parents. Grown children still need to honor their parents, even if the obedience part transitions out. But what it actually looks like to honor your parents when you're quite a bit older, you're no longer a child, can actually be pretty tricky. Let me ask a few questions. True or false? When your parents get old, it is a good and a noble thing. It's a sign of your love and your respect if you help your parents move into a nursing home or a retirement home. True True or false? It is shameful for parents to ask their grown children for financial support. True or false? It's an honor and a privilege that your parents or your parents-in-law would someday move into your home and live with your family. And I think for every one of those questions, some people would say true and other people would say false. And generally speaking, I think you would answer along the lines of the culture in which you were raised. Parents and culture can put a real kind of expectation on us. We can put a kind of expectation on ourselves, but as Christians, I think we can all agree that what matters most is the expectation God puts on us. So what I'd like to do is take those kinds of questions to the Bible. We believe God's Word is sufficient, that it speaks to all matters of obedience. If there's some way we need to obey God, we'll find it in His Word. So why don't we turn to God's Word together and just see what would God say to us as grown-ups about relating to our parents? So let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'd like to read the first eight verses and then focus on those this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Here's what it says there. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young protege, Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead, even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
So what I'd like to do is move through this with four different headings. You can pay attention, four headings, four points. The first one is church, be a family. Church, be a family. And as we come to this chapter, this little chapter in a much longer letter, Paul begins to address an issue that Pastor Timothy is facing in his church in Ephesus. And this is an issue related to how the church cares for widows, for for women whose husbands had either died or had abandoned them. So women left alone. And we know from the book of Acts, the church's earliest days, this was one of the concerns of the church, how to care for widows. So in this little part of a longer letter, Paul clarifies the church's responsibility by telling Timothy who the church should and who the church should not support. But before he does that, he lays an interesting foundation. He reminds Timothy that church is family. So verse 1, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. So Timothy is to take family as his starting point and to to relate to the members of his church according to the rules of family. So he should treat older men with all the respect of a father. He should treat younger men with all the affection of a brother. He should treat older women with all the devotion of a mother. And he should treat younger women with all the purity of a sister. Why should he do that? So why should he look at family and then extrapolate that toward his church? Well, because in a spiritual sense, these people, this church really is his family. They deserve to be treated like the family they are. So Paul lays that foundation for these instructions he's about to give. He says, church, be a family. And now, with that foundation laid, Paul begins his instruction on caring for widows. And essentially what he says is, church, honor true widows. So that's the second heading, church, honor true widows. Now why is caring for widows... Of all things that could be cared for by a church, why are widows so important? Well, that's because they were a very vulnerable group. They often had no means of support. They had no one to protect them. They had no one to advocate for them. The society back then wasn't an advanced welfare society. They didn't have much by way of pension plans and so on. So women who are left alone, they were easily taken advantage of. They were often reduced to abject poverty. So what were those women to do? What many of them would do is appeal to the church. Church, can you help me? Church, I've got nothing. Will you support me? It became the church's responsibility to care for them. So in this passage, Paul affirms that responsibility, but he also clarifies it. Verse 3, he says, honor widows who are truly widows. So that's a simple affirmation of what the church is to do. Honor widows. To honor To bring honors to give recognition to, or to attach importance to, or to give respect. Wrapped up is this idea of providing for needs, including material needs or financial needs. So part of honor includes provision. And we know that for many different reasons, but we can see it even right in the context. Paul tells how to care for widows. The next instruction he gives is how to care for pastors. And what does he say? He says to give them honor and then defines that as paying them, compensating them so they can fully free themselves up to the work of ministry. 
Or you can go to the book of Matthew where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He's rebuking the Pharisees for failing to honor their parents. What are they doing that's so dishonorable toward their parents? Well, they found this sneaky little way of holding back money from their parents so they don't have to give their parents financial provision. So as we look at honor throughout Scripture, we see that honor extends from basic respect all the way to financial provision when there's a need. That's what it means to honor. So the church then, the local church, is not just to welcome widows into the church, not just to welcome them into the membership of the church. They're to go even farther and to provide for their needs. Remember, Paul's just said, treat older women as mothers. And now he's telling on the church, so just act out that kind of financial or that kind of family relationship. But he does place a condition on it. He doesn't say honor every widow, right? He says honor widows who are truly widows. So that raises the obvious question. What is a true widow? What does that word mean that Paul distinguishes widows from true widows? Well, he gives two criteria. A true widow has a genuine financial need, and a true widow has genuine Christian character. She's got a genuine financial need, and she's a woman of genuine Christian character. And we can see that in verse 5. Paul says, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So a true widow is alone. She's got nobody to support her, nobody to take care of her. Also, a true widow is godly. And Paul kind of summarizes that theme of godliness by talking about her prayer life. She's the kind of woman who's given over to prayer. She's not the kind of woman who's self-indulgent, who who might see widowhood as like, now he's gone so I can just live this life of depravity, this life of luxury, I can go out and do whatever I want. No, she's a godly woman who sees widowhood as an opportunity specifically to pray. So true widows are those who have a genuine financial need and those who show genuine Christian character. So the church then is not a provider of social services to the community, but it's a family that cares for its own members. If this widow is a member of God's family proven by her profession of faith and her godly lifestyle, then she's worthy of our support just like we would support our own mother. Now, I want to work toward that, how, we should, uh, how this applies to grown children. You remember that was the end to this text, how should grown children think about their parents, their aging or elderly parents. But before we do that, let's just pause and apply what we've seen so far. Right? We've been talking about widows. So first, what we need to see is the heart of God here. God, through Paul, commands the church to care for widows. Why? Because God cares about widows. God hates and is opposed to any person or any system that either ignores or takes advantage of people who are unprotected or people who are susceptible to harm. Psalm 68 calls God father of the fatherless and protector of widows. What a great title. Wouldn't you love to meet somebody who's father of the fatherless and protector of widows? The Old Testament is full of these calls for God's people to care for the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, anybody who's particularly 
vulnerable. So in Deuteronomy 27, we read about the Levites, and they were supposed to say to all the people, gather the people and say to them, cursed, the curse of God, be upon anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people were to answer, amen. We agree God's curse ought to be on anybody who takes advantage of or neglects the widow. So in God's nation, run according to God's law, he established rights and protection for vulnerable people like widows. He also gave terrible warnings about what would happen if people neglected this part of his law. So in Ezekiel, God warns that his judgment is falling upon Israel. Right? God's judgment is coming upon these people. Why? Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourner suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. So God embedded care for the widow into the laws of his land. Now today, God still provides for his needy people, and often he does so through government. But at the final mark, he does so through his church. God cares for needy people, his needy people, through his church. God is spiritually present in this world through his Holy Spirit, but he's physically present through his church. So it's us, his church, we're the ones who are charged with carrying out his work here. So that's the first thing we need to see. The second is this, in a highly socialized country like Canada, we may not find a whole lot of that kind of widow. It's possible, and we should be willing and ready to help. We should be on Look out for people, for widows who do not have enough to sustain their needs. But really, I think what we find is, is most people in Canada in a socialized country have access through the government to the kind of resources that will cover their basic needs. That, that's different now than it was 2,000 years ago. But even though it's true that we may not see exactly the kind of criteria Paul calls for here, I, I don't think it's a stretch to perhaps extend the principle in a number of ways. Like, perhaps we'd want to extend that principle to a widow who doesn't lack money. She's got some money. But what she does lack is love, relationship. Today, there's many, many people, many in Canada, including widows, who are financially wealthy, but relationally impoverished. They've got money that can provide professional care, but they don't have community that can provide love. And so the church has the opportunity to provide the relational need she has and maybe to provide for other needs among its members. As I came to this and I preached this first in my own church, I had to think about Grace Fellowship Church. And I think we're pretty good at meeting people's needs on Sunday, right? We gather together, we look for people in our congregation we can love and serve on Sunday. But it got me thinking about the other six or six and a half days of the week. And I don't think our church or most churches do as well right here. There's lots of ways we can help one another through the week, especially we think about widows or other people who are elderly or infirm or who have special needs. We can care for a home. We can care for a property. We can offer assistance with shopping trips. We can pro- provide transportation to medical appointments. That, that elderly woman is to be treated like a mother. Wouldn't you take your mother, your own mother, to her medical appointments if she had them? Wouldn't you do your best to make sure she's got relationships, not just on Sunday, but all through the week? 
Think you find there's people in every church who need a man who can love them in a son-like way? There's people in every church who need a woman to love them in a daughter-like way. Then the church can also provide the need of purpose. Paul writes of widows who continue in prayer and supplication night and day. He points to a key role in the church that's ideal for widows and for other elderly folk. You can pray. Even if your physical strength has waned, I believe your spiritual strength has just now begun to peak. So why not commit yourself to prayer? The church needs you. Every church needs you. This church needs you. It needs you to pray for them. And that's a ministry you can carry out here in this building. It's a ministry you can carry out in your home. It's a ministry you can carry out from your bed. You can carry it out alone or with a group of other people. And it may just prove the most significant the greatest ministry of your life. So there's Paul's message. The second thing we need to see is church honor true widows. Now, you remember we turned to this passage because I want to explore the responsibility of grown children to their parents. The the passage's primary purpose is to address the church about widows, and I think we've come to understand, at least to some degree, what Paul calls us to do there. But as he addresses the church about widows, he also addresses individuals about their parents. He speaks of this related issue, and I think we can summarize it by saying, Child, honor your parents. Child, honor your parents. That's our third out of four headings. So look at verse 4. If you would, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4. It says, If a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This teaches us something. Even though Christians are a family, and even though that spiritual family is real, it doesn't negate the biological family. And we know that because if there's a widow in the church, the first responsibility to her care is not to the church, but specifically to her children and her grandchildren. And so I guess we see that that Christians are part of different levels of family, you might say. So the first duty of care falls to the immediate family. That's father, mother, children, whether by birth or adoption. It's immediate family. After that, duty falls to what we might call extended family, right? Grandparents, grandchildren, possibly aunts, uncles, cousins, people who are related but a little more distantly. And only then, if there's no one who's able or no one who's willing to provide, only then does the church family assume care. There's an order. There's a priority. So it's like there's these concentric circles from immediate family to extended family, to church family. Duty begins in the smaller circle, and it broadens out from there. The text says that children or grandchildren should learn to show godliness to their own household. And that's interesting, because as you read scripture, you see godliness always begins in the family. It always begins in the home. Anyone who wishes to be truly godly before God must take care of his primary responsibilities before his secondary ones. And it's clear that providing for your immediate family is within that smallest circle. 
What does it mean to be godly? What does that kind of godliness involve? Verse 4, make some return to their parents. That's godliness in this context, is for you to make some return to your parents. The return he talks about here is essentially, it's essentially the repayment of a debt. In Paul's way of thinking, children have accumulated a kind of debt before their parents. So you might be wondering, what have my parents done that I ought to be willing to repay? Well, first, most obviously, your parents gave you the gift of life. They brought you into this world in which you could love God and be loved by God for all eternity. That, that is a gift of immense worth. They brought you into this world so you could meet God, know God, love God, relate to God for all eternity. That is a gift your parents have given you. Then from the moment of conception, your parents cared for you, right? Your mother endured illness and ate carefully and choked down those huge vitamins and stopped drinking coffee and all this good stuff so she could give you an environment in which you could grow and develop. From the day of your birth, your parents took care of your every need and every expense. They fed you and they cuddled you and they changed your diaper more than 6,000 times. That's love. They clothed you and they educated you and they let you learn to drive in their car and on and on it goes. That's all your parents did for you. What did you do for your parents in all that time? Probably not a whole lot, right? You cried a lot and you woke them up at night and you spilled stuff and you probably dented their car when they let you drive it. And and probably along the way you complained an awful lot about all the things they hadn't given you. And if you were raised in a Christian home, You've got even more to be thankful for. Since your parents introduced you to the Bible and they took you to church and they explained the gospel to you, they spent endless hours on their knees before God interceding on your behalf. Do you know what a gift it is to have praying parents? So yeah, yeah, Paul can say make some return to your parents. It's like by the time you grow up, you've got this huge imbalance between one side of a scale and another side. Of a scale. So on this side is all your parents have done for you. And on the other side, all that you've done for your parents. And you probably don't do a whole lot to change that imbalance in your 20s or in your 30s. But then as your parents age, you're given the opportunity to, to make a return, to right the scales. And how do you do that? By beginning to care for your parents like your parents cared for you. By beginning to love your parents in some of the ways your parents loved you. As children age, they grow in physical strength. They grow in the ability to earn money. They grow in the, the capability of making wise decisions. Meanwhile, their parents begin to diminish in strength. They begin to lose their ability to make money. They begin to struggle in the capacity to make wise decisions. And at some point, roles begin to reverse. As children grow more and more independent, their parents grow more and more dependent. And it's right here. It's right at this very point that Paul is calling for children to identify this and to own this and to take it on as their responsibility. It's not first the responsibility of the government to make sure that your parents are being treated well and living in some comfort and receiving care, though certainly the government can help. We're we're very blessed to have a government that will help with that. But it's not first the responsibility of government. It's not first 
the responsibility of the church. It's your responsibility as their child. And if that's specifically true in the context of this passage for children whose mother has been widowed, it's still generally true for children whose parents are both alive. Because the great controlling principle here is honor. All we're doing here is working out the implications of the fifth commandment. Why should you do all this? Why should you honor your parents and provide for them and make some return to them? Paul gives two reasons you ought to do this. The first is related to God's special revelation in the Bible. At the end of verse 4, he says, This is pleasing in the sight of God. God has revealed in the Bible... He's revealed through special revelation that children should honor their parents. It pleases God when you obey. That's the first reason. The second reason is related to God's general revelation in nature. Listen to this, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong Strong words. If you do not provide for your own household, you've denied the faith, you're worse than an unbeliever. What Paul means to say is that even people who have never read a Bible, they just know. They know that children are to care for their parents because God has just embedded this into humanity. It's written on our firmware. The person who refuses this God-given duty is acting shamefully. He's acting worse than the most defiant unbeliever. So what do we see here? We see that God has designed family to serve a unique function in his world. Well, that spiritual family, this spiritual family is real and will endure into eternity. The biological family still remains the core social unit in this world. That hasn't changed from creation until now. And one of the chief functions of family is to provide care, and to provide support from birth to death. Just as it's not chiefly the role of the state or the church to care for children, I think we all know that, right? It's not chiefly the role of the church or the state to care for children. It's not chiefly the role of the church or the state to care for the elderly. Verse 7, Paul says, Command these things so that they may be without reproach. Heeding these instructions is a key to living a life that's above reproach, a life that brings glory to God. So let's think very practically for just a minute. We're coming to the end of this third part. We've got one to go. But before we get there, let's just think practically about how to do this. How can we practically put this into action? We're not just learning head knowledge here, right? We want to actually act this out in our lives. So the text makes this perfectly clear. You have the first duty of care toward vulnerable family members who are lacking the necessities of life. Fair? If there's people in your immediate family who are lacking the necessities of life, that falls to you to provide for them. If you fail to provide for the genuine needs of your family, especially that closest circle of family, you're disobeying God, you're bringing reproach upon the gospel. So if your widowed mother or your disabled sister or your invalid grandfather is languishing alone and in poverty while you prosper, you need to repent of that and you need to provide. Beyond that, which is I think perfectly clear in scripture, we enter into this realm where things may be a little less clear. 
And so we need to move carefully. We need to move prayerfully. We need to move according to wisdom and according to conscience. See, Paul seems to present a kind of idealized family here where there are two or three generations who are all Christians, all honoring the Lord together. For many of us, that's just not our reality. Maybe you're the elderly one today and your family has made it clear, we will not follow the Lord, we will not help you, we will not provide for you, we don't intend to obey what God commands here. That's difficult. Maybe you're the younger one and your parents are demanding this kind of honor from you, but they themselves are living in total disobedience to God. That's very difficult. And I understand that many people have very difficult relationships, very, very complicated relationships with their family. So what would be very easy to apply in a perfect world is actually very difficult to apply in a sinful world like this one. I asked those true or false questions when we began, so I think you could see that the answers aren't always perfectly clear. Should you give money to your parents? Well, sometimes giving money to a parent is providing for genuine need. Sometimes providing money to a parent is just enabling sin or endorsing laziness. Sometimes parents have a real need for our time and our attention. Sometimes our parents are unfair or they're overbearing. Sometimes using the services of a nursing home is just dumping our parents, making them somebody else's problem. But sometimes it really is the best way we can show our love and show our concern for them when they can receive the kind of care that only that home can provide. So God has given us his big command and he trusts us to look to scripture and to apply specifically the nitty-gritty of our own unique situations. He's provided his word. He's provided his spirit. He's provided his church. And you can take advantage of all of them as you think about this and pray about this. And you can trust that God will show you his will, that God will show you the way. As I've spoken to people about this issue and as I've thought about it, I've observed that a lot of our concerns really come down to time and to money. We don't like to give up either our time or our money. And we don't like to give them up because they're always in short supply, right? There's nobody out there who has too much time. Nobody out there who's convinced he has too much money. They're always in short supply. And also we like to convince ourselves that we don't have enough now, but at some point in the future, tomorrow or next year, I'll have more. And then I'll be able to give. Then I'll be able to help them out. But we need to remember that both time and money are a gift from God. And I'm pretty sure he gives us enough to do the things he means for us to do. He gives us enough time to fulfill our duties. He gives us enough money to meet our obligations. And it would be to our shame if we took the time God has given us and then ignored responsibilities so we could pursue pleasures. It would be to our shame if we accepted the money that he's provided for us, but then we held it back from people who have a genuine need. God doesn't give us time and money so we can carry out our own will. He gives us time and money so we can carry out his will. So we need to bring our will into conformity with his, and then we'll be able to faithfully steward those precious resources. So as we prayerfully take these matters before the Lord in our own lives, we need to ask God to give us clarity into our own hearts and into his heart. But then maybe consider this as you think about these things. Could it ever be wrong to, to lean to the side of mercy? 
Could it ever be wrong to lean to the side of grace, to lean to the side of giving more rather than less? The one who has been forgiven little loves little. The one who's been forgiven much loves much. Let me ask, have you been forgiven little or much? It sounded like when we read the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon, sounds like we've been forgiven quite a lot. If you've been forgiven a lot, you can love a lot. The gospel that we've sung about here and heard here, the gospel says that Jesus took the punishment you deserved so you could have the holiness you don't deserve. This was given to you as a gift, a gift that came through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So who are you to now relate to your parents on the basis of what they deserve, on the basis of what you feel they deserve? Really, to relate to your parents on the basis of what you believe they deserve is to ask God to relate to you on the basis of what you deserve. And you do not want God to relate to you on the basis of what you deserve. You want him to relate to you on the basis of grace. Fact is, you can love your parents far better than they loved you. You can give far more than they gave you. You can make a return to your parents that's dramatically bigger than what they gave you. And you can do it all because of the gospel. You can do it all with joy. We have to come to that fourth and final heading, which is honor God. We know that the thrust of this passage, the thrust of the whole Bible, is to honor and obey God. And in this case, we're to honor God by honoring our parents. In fact, we find that honoring our parents is honoring God. We can't honor God while we dishonor our parents. These two are very tightly bound together. So just briefly, before we close, let me turn to those of us who are realizing, oh, actually, I'm the one who's getting older. I'm not the young one looking up at my parents. I'm the older one looking down to my kids and wondering, how are they to relate to me? How am I to relate to them? How should I expect them to relate to me when that time comes? Let me, let me give you two things here. Teach your children and prepare yourself. Just two points of application. First, teach and train your children in this matter we've been talking about. I think we as Christians have done ourselves and our children a big disservice in, in not coming to biblical convictions and not setting biblical expectations for how children ought to relate to their parents when those children are no longer under our authority. I just don't think that's something culturally we talk about very much. We don't prepare our children in that way. Many of us lay culturally-based expectations on our children. Some of those are too high or too low. I'm not sure there's a lot of us who are thinking clearly and thinking biblically and then discipling our children so they know how to obey God here. So we need to teach and train our children. We don't just need to teach and train our children. We need to teach ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. So how should we prepare to relate to our children when they're the strong ones and we're the weak ones? When they're the ones who are becoming increasingly capable and we're the ones who are becoming increasingly needy? And as is so often the case in the Christian life, I think we need to battle for the middle ground between these two different extremes. On the one side, we can have this proud independence, as if becoming dependent on our children is a mark of weakness or a mark of failure. 
And if we lean to this side, we'll think we failed if we place any expectation on our children at all. That kind of sounds like pride to me. The, the fact is, the brutal fact is, we are weak today, and we're only going to get weaker as life goes on. And God has, prov- God has promised he'll provide for us in our weakness And as we read this passage, I think we have to realize that God provides in our weakness through our children. That's one of the ways God means to provide is through family. God designed family to be this this network of mutual care and mutual support that lasts from birth to death. So we have the duty, we have the privilege of uh, caring for our children when they were young. They'll have the duty, the privilege of caring for us when we're old. That's God's design. So we need to be prepared to depend upon our children. We need to be okay with someday depending upon our children. So that's one extreme. The other extreme is selfish entitlement. If this one side is proud independence, the other is selfish entitlement, acting as if our children bear all the responsibility to take care for us. So it's the entitlement mentality of, I provided for you, now you provided for me. Or I'm your dad, you owe me. We can't be thinking that way. Proverbs 13, verse 22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, Children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So wisdom dictates that parents work hard and attempt to provide for the needs of our children when they're young and for our own needs when we're old. So even as we prepare to depend upon our children in some ways, We should try to make their load as light as possible through diligent labor and careful saving and wise planning. So somewhere between those two extremes of proud independence and selfish entitlement, I think we can find a beautiful balance. We raise our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We work hard. We provide for them and provide for ourselves to the best of our abilities. We discharge our responsibilities to our children when they're young. Then as we grow older, we rely upon them so they can make a return, so they can discharge their responsibilities to us. They make a return in time and love and care, yes, maybe even in money. And if for some reason they're unable, we know that God's family, the church, will then joyfully step in to assume that care. I think there's something beautiful about this when it's working the way God intends. God has provided for his people through Immediate family, extended family, church family. We cared for our children as they entered this world. It falls to our children to care for us as we leave this world. We were there for them when they drew their first breath. They're to be there for us when we draw our last breath. We laid our children in the cradle. They'll lay us in the grave. We'll have to say farewell, but... But if we know Christ, and if they know Christ, this is farewell for just a little while. When their own generation gives way to the next and their time comes, surely, surely we'll be part of that welcoming committee that that meets them, that greets them at the gates of heaven. And we'll be able to be there with them forever. Not first as fathers and sons or mothers and daughters, but as brothers and sisters in the great family of our great Father. We pray that the Lord makes it so. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your word guides us into all righteousness. 
As your people, we want to be righteous. We want to know what you call us to do, and we want to do it. So we thank you that your word makes that clear. Pray that we would understand it, that we would apply it, that we would live it out, live like it's true. We pray that you would help us to be obedient to you and to bring you great glory. In Jesus' name, amen.